In my early days, I faced a pivotal moment in my career. Instead of following the herd into traditional finance, I charted my own course. Despite skepticism, I founded my investment firm driven by a belief in economic truth and fiscal responsibility. Through perseverance, I established myself as a leading voice in finance, proving that sometimes blazing your own path is the best way to succeed. To get what you want, sometimes you have to challenge the status quo and blaze your own trail. That's what Harry's did. Seeing people tricked by expensive razors, Harry's took a stand. Instead of pricey options, they offer high-quality razors at a fraction of the cost. That's why when it comes to grooming my face, I use Harry's. Harry's understands the value of quality without breaking the bank. Their razors provide a smooth shave every time, and their shaving gel leaves my skin feeling refreshed and moisturized. So don't settle for the status quo. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com gold. That's harrys.com gold for a $3 trial set. We all make mistakes, decisions that we regret, things we'd like to do over, like not buying Bitcoin when you first heard about it at $1. We all carry around different stresses, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. At times, therapy has helped me and my loved ones in many ways. Therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. With the right guide, you can discover effective strategies to minimize distractions and truly connect with your needs, setting the stage for a more balanced life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched up with a life therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit betterhelp.com slash gold today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash gold. The Peter Schiff Show. Well, hope everybody had a very good Memorial Day weekend. The stock market came back from the three-day weekend with back-to-back 500-plus point rallies. Today's gained 553 points. I think yesterday's uh, was slightly over 500, although I think one point intraday we were up better than 700. You know, interestingly enough, the supposed catalyst for uh, uh, Tuesday's rally was another company that had announced uh, pre-market that they had uh, started phase one testing of a COVID-19 vaccine. And so the market was rallying uh, on, on this. But, you know, first of all, the market is already pricing in an eventual vaccine. I mean, that is the scenario that everybody assumes. I mean, yes, the vaccine is a year or two away, but it is in the market that there will be a vaccine. I mean, could you imagine where the market would be right now if nobody believed that we were going to have a vaccine, right? If the sheltering in place and the social distancing was going to continue indefinitely? So clearly the markets expect a vaccine. Well, we can't have a vaccine unless we have companies doing a phase one trial. I mean, that's just the first step in a long process to get a, uh, a vaccine. Because remember, you have phase one, you have phase two, and then you have phase three. You know, so you have to get through all of these phases and they get progressively, you know, more difficult. Like they, they keep on raising their hurdle uh, that you have to clear uh, to get a drug approved. So the fact that we're, you know, we're in phase one really doesn't mean very much, especially when the market already assumes that we're going to get a vaccine. So how many times can the market rally on the same news? If the markets already expect a, a vaccine, every time some company says, oh, we're going to test one, we got phase one, uh, most of these drugs aren't even going to make it out of phase one. Some of them will, some of them will get to phase two. Uh, but you know, to have the market continuously rallying on the same news doesn't make any sense. In fact, we got a big rally last week. Remember the catalyst? I think we had a thousand point rally in the Dow because this company Moderna, right? They had 
promising phase one results, supposedly, right? They had this CEO, he was interviewed on CNBC, the stock went way up, except today the stock came crashing down. It was down over 9%. In fact, I'm looking at the chart of this stock. Uh, on the day that that news came out that shot up the Dow a thousand points, uh, Moderna shares were as high as $87 a piece last week. Today they closed at 52 They've been killed. They're way below where they were before it gapped up. And remember, the company used the hype to sell a bunch of stock to the market, right? They pumped it up and then they dumped a bunch of shares on investors. But it turns out that all that news was probably just fake news. And the stock itself has given up all of the gains related to its supposed uh, vaccine. But the stock market hasn't given up any gains. It's added to those gains now that there's another company that supposedly has preliminary testing going on uh, for a gain. So the market just keeps on rallying on all this hope and all this hype. In fact, if you look at the NASDAQ, which, you know, the NASDAQ kind of underperformed today uh, and it did the last couple of days. So some of the really beaten down stocks and look, there's a lot of stocks that went down more than they should have. There's no question that they threw a lot of babies out with the bathwater. So the fact that some of these stocks that got too low are coming back, that's fine. In fact, there are still stocks that I believe should come back even more, right? That they went down too much. But a lot of stocks haven't gone down nearly enough. In fact, the overall U.S. stock market isn't down nearly as much as it should be. In fact, even though the Dow is off about 10% on the year, I think the S&P is off maybe 6% as of today's close. The, um, the NASDAQ is actually up maybe about 5%. I don't have the exact numbers. I'm just kind of guesstimating from memory. But 5% gain on the year. The market was up big in 2019. 2019 was a good year for stocks. And the NASDAQ is now even higher. And if you remember... When 2019 ended, the stock market was priced for perfection. I was talking about that and how dangerous it was when you had a market that was priced for perfection because what happens if you don't get it? Because you rarely do. I mean, how often do things end up being perfect? Well, 2020 is probably as far from perfection as you're going to get, although actually it's going to get further at some point when we get the dollar crash, when we get the real crash. But based on, you know, what people might have expected, right, we didn't even come close to being a perfect year for stocks. Yet the Nasdaq actually added to the gains that it had when it was expecting perfection and it got anything but perfection. In fact, if you remember and if you don't, I'll refresh your memory as to why the stock market was so strong in 2019. Well, one reason was, right, we had a really bad fourth quarter in 2018, right? We had the worst December since the Great Depression, right? So the market was coming off the rails at the end of 2018. And so what happened was the Federal Reserve came to the rescue, called off uh, the rate hikes, and started rate cuts. We got three rate cuts to power the market higher in 2019. And we got an end of quantitative tightening and the launching of quantitative easing, even though the Fed didn't officially admit that what it was doing was quantitative easing. It was quantitative easing, regardless of how they wanted to label it or how they wanted to spin it. The distinction that they made between what the Fed was doing in 2019 and what it did in 2009, 10, 11, that it called QE, uh, there was no difference. I don't care about the length of maturities of the debt the government was buying. That was never a factor. Quantitative easing was basically monetizing debt. It was when the Federal Reserve goes into the open market and buys government bonds or mortgage bonds. And that's what they started doing in the repo market in, in, in 2019. So you had uh, the reversal of Fed policy from rate hikes and quantitative tightening to rate cuts and quantitative easing. 
But one of the reasons that the market really liked that was because these were seen as preemptive moves, right? If you remember what the Fed was saying, this was an insurance policy, just in case, right? The Fed was saying, look, we don't really expect a recession, but just in case, just to play it safe, we're going to take out a little insurance, right? We're going to have these rate cuts. This is going to be a mid-course correction. Remember all that stuff? This is just a down payment to make sure we don't have a recession. And the market bought that. And so all the recession fears went away. So one of the reasons that we had such a strong stock market in 2019 was the widely accepted view that there was no recession anytime in sight. Right? And because we weren't going to have a recession, Trump was going to sail into a second term, right? How would Trump not get reelected if we had a booming economy? And if you thought maybe the bloom would come off the rose, uh, the Fed uh, took that option off the table with its uh, mid-course correction. So not only were investors happy about the fact that there was no recession anywhere in sight, which would be great for corporate earnings, but now they knew that Donald Trump would get reelected so they wouldn't have to worry about higher taxes on corporations, higher income taxes or cap gains taxes. Uh, they could get more deregulation. And so investors were happy about that. That was the other reason we had the big rally. But then there was the trade deal, right? The trade deal with China was a big reason for the 2019 rally because Trump kept goosing the market by talking about the great trade deal that he was going to deliver that was going to be a boom uh, for U.S. economy, right? We're going to have this big uh, boom, uh, export boom, because of the deal with China, which was going to be the greatest deal ever. Well, and then when Trump couldn't actually deliver a great deal, he delivered phase one which he hyped up as, you know, the first part of a great deal, right? This is just, you know, we're, this is just the, the opening act uh, and, and we're going to follow it up with, with phase two, right? And so when Trump announced phase one, the market went up, right? Because we had all these supposed concessions. The Chinese were going to buy all this stuff, right? They committed to these big buys of American products. And Trump was saying, this is great. This is a great trade deal, but it's only the first phase. Uh, we're now starting negotiations on, on phase two. So the markets got all hyped up on the prospects of a great trade deal. Then Trump delivered the first part of what was ultimately supposed to be a great trade deal, uh, but didn't actually deliver on the deal itself. Now, I was saying at the time, Phase one was all we were going to get. That was it. There was nothing else. Uh, but the markets were still uh, anticipating that there was going to be more. So you had the trade deal with China. You had the reversal in Fed policy. You had the fact that there was no recession anywhere in sight. And you had Trump being a shoe-in to get reelected. All of that was powering the market in 2019. Well, here we are, right? in May of, of 2020. And look at the stock market. We didn't get anything. I mean, the only thing the market got was more easing. And of course, the market didn't even expect that because the market didn't think the economy needed it because the market was convinced there would be no recession. Well, not only was the market wrong, we have the worst recession ever. We didn't just get a recession. We have the recession. We have a recession that is worse than the Great Recession of 2009. So the market was priced for no recession at all. And we didn't just get a recession. We got the mother of all recessions. So how much more wrong could the market have been? The trade deal is completely gone. I mean, Trump will admit that there's no more trade talks with China. I mean, phase two, forget about phase two. I mean, forget about phase one. I mean, the Chinese are pretty clear that nothing that they agreed to is on the table, that the COVID-19 pandemic trumped the Trump trade deal and nothing's going to happen. So not only are we not going to get phase two, which the markets were hoping for and priced in, but we are got to price out phase one. Whatever we thought we got from phase one, we don't have it anymore. So it's all gone. 
So we have this huge recession and we have no trade deal, right? Nothing. Whatever the status quo was before, it's, it's, it's going to continue. We got, we got nothing. And Donald Trump's prospects of getting reelected have diminished dramatically. If you look at the betting odds, you look at the polls, the odds are that Trump is going to lose. Now, it's a tight race, but it went from Trump being the favorite to Trump being a slight underdog. In fact, it now even looks likely that not only will the Democrats retain the House, which I think was always something the markets expected, but something that the markets didn't expect at all in 2019 is that the Democrats will get the Senate. So they'll have both houses of Congress and the White House. So the worst of all possible outcomes, right? We didn't get the trade deal that we wanted. Trump's odds of getting reelected have fallen. And not only did we not avoid recession, we're in the worst recession since the Great Depression. And the markets are barely down. In fact, the markets are up if you go back to the beginning of 2019. Now, not the Russell 2000, right? The small cap stocks, they're down. I mean, they're still down quite a bit. I think they're officially out of bear market territory now, or maybe it's close, but they're still way down. But overall, the markets still have a good chunk of that 2019 rally. And of course, the NASDAQ has the entire rally and it's added to it. But the only reason that the market has gone up is because the Fed has been more aggressive than anybody believed. The Fed has printed more money than anybody thought possible. The monetary and fiscal stimulus is so huge that it trumped everything else. And that's it. That's the only reason the market is rallying. In fact, you know, I've actually heard people talking about, you know, the silver lining of of COVID-19, right? The, the, The silver lining in this cloud is that it was a catalyst to give us this fiscal and monetary stimulus, right? That but for this pandemic and this great recession, we wouldn't have got all this stimulus. And therefore, it's actually a blessing in disguise, right? The market's actually going to be stronger because we're getting all this stimulus. Look, what the government is doing is not a good thing. The monetary and fiscal stimulus is actually worse than the recession and the COVID-19 virus, right? So whatever happened to the economy because of the virus, what's gonna happen to the economy because of what the government has done to supposedly cure us from the disease is going to be much worse. Look, if there was a real benefit to be derived from monetary and fiscal stimulus, if just printing money and spending it was a good thing, why would we have to wait for something bad to happen. I mean, if it's so great, why didn't we just do it? I mean, why do we need a disaster? Why do we need a recession? Or why do we need a pandemic? Let's just print money. I mean, if printing money works when times are bad, it should work even better when times are good, right? Well, the reality is there are some politicians that understand the trade-offs. They know that if we give the economy a sugar high, if we just create inflation, if we print money and run deficits, that we may goose the economy in the short run, but we'll pay a price in the longer run. And so we get some short-term gain, but at the cost, the expense of long-term pain. And so there are some government officials that don't want to make the trade-off. And so they're not going to sign on to it. But what happens when there's a problem or a crisis, you know, all that goes out the window, right? Those Republicans who would normally say, hey, this is not worth the trade-off. Yes, we'll get a little boost if we stimulate, uh, but we're going to pay for it later. And so it's not worth the long-term cost, the short-term gain. But once there's a crisis, those trade-offs go out the window. And just about every Republican out there is willing to sign on to any kind of stimulus because they don't want to stand in the way of aid when there's a crisis. And they totally forget about the fact that there's a trade-off or they don't even care, right? Because all they care about is, hey, we got this crisis and I don't want to have to run for re-election as the guy who wanted to deny somebody some type of bailout money, especially now, 
you know, with COVID-19 because it's nobody's fault, right? Nobody is to blame. And so now the government has to come and, and, and give everybody money. And nobody wants to be that stingy politician that denied people who were in need money, even though the government doesn't actually have any money, right? It just, you know, has what the Fed prints at this point, which means we're destroying the value of the money that's there. But those concepts are lost on everybody. So the bottom line is all we've got in the market is the Fed. As a public person, I am hyper aware of safety and security. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays offline. Delete Me is a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web, and in the process, helps prevent potential ID theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted, and their experts will take it from there. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports showing what information they found, where they found it, and what they removed. Delete Me isn't just a one-time service. Delete Me is always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information that you don't want on the internet. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me. Now at a special discount for my listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com gold and use the promo code GOLD at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash gold and enter code GOLD at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash gold, code GOLD. Let's talk finance. Wouldn't it be convenient to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one spot? Yahoo Finance does just that. It consolidates your portfolio views and offers expert analysis, making it easier to manage your investments. Let's not beat around the bush. You want to grow your portfolio, fight inflation, pay off debts, and achieve financial freedom. Yahoo Finance provides the news, data, and tools to make that happen. You may think you've covered all the bases, savings, researching, and investing smartly. But to truly excel, you need Yahoo Finance in your corner. A holistic perspective is crucial for success, and Yahoo Finance ensures you have it. With a massive community of over 90 million users monthly, Yahoo Finance is here to guide you on your path to financial success. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. It's 100% a Fed-induced sugar high. And, you know, there's an old Wall Street adage, sell in May and go away. And I think that this May is probably going to end up being a pretty good time uh, to sell and go away from the U.S. stock market. I mean, you've had this big, big rally off the low. Uh, and I, it's actually bigger than I thought it was going to be. If you remember, I mean, I, I did say that we were going to get a rally. You know, as the market was banging on the bottom, when I was doing this podcast, I was saying we're going to get a rally. I mean, there's no way all this money printing, all this stimulus isn't going to buy some type of rally. I think we ended up buying a bigger rally than I thought, but I thought we would get a rally. And what this rally is doing now is convincing everybody that the worst is over. Right, because everybody believes the market is forward-looking, and we're pricing in the V-shaped recovery. And even if it gets off to a slower start, the market is looking beyond this great recession to this great recovery that is going to follow the great recession. Because again, people still don't get the position the U.S. economy was in before it collapsed. They think we can go back to where we were. We can't because all we had was a bubble. The bubble has popped and it's not going to be reflated. But most people don't get that. And of course, you know, when the recovery starts, and it will start, right? We are going to get some good numbers in the Q3, which for Trump, right, 
Those are the numbers he's going to have going into the election. We're not going to have the Q4 numbers, which could be pretty bad. But the Q3 numbers are going to be good. They may even be better than expected. I'm not even sure what the expectations are, but that's because the Q2 numbers are going to be much worse than we thought. So we're going to have a really, really sharp fall in Q1 and Q2. And then there's going to be a bounce. It's inevitable, right? Businesses that shut down, they're going to start back up. Now, some of the ones that start back up are going to shut back down again, maybe in the fourth quarter, but they're going to start up. Some people are going to come back to work. Not all the people are going to come back, but a bunch of people will come back. Now, how long they stay back, we'll see. A lot of the jobs that come back will be lost again, right? But we're going to get some kind of move off the bottom. And so you're going to get more and more people thinking that it's a V. See, we've got a recovery. But what I think is going to happen to that pattern is long before the upward slope can complete the letter V, it's going to take a downward turn, right? And it's actually going to go down and take out the lows from uh, where where the V started, the bottom. And so it's actually going to end up being like a lightning bolt, right? Where it's going to go like this and then up a little bit and then down even more. Uh, But of course, that might not happen until after, after the election. But I think the market is starting to factor this in or has factored it in. But what's going to begin to happen is now the markets have to look beyond that initial bounce to the relapse back into an even worse recession than the one we have now. And now what people have to really do is to look at the economic numbers, look at the debt and look at the insolvent position of the United States. Because this is what the markets are going to begin to focus on. And I know they haven't focused on them in the past. We've been able to get away with it. And now we have this idea that we got away with it so far. So we're going to get away with it forever. Not going to happen. right? Murphy's Law, anything that can go wrong will go wrong. Well, my law is everything that can go wrong will go wrong. And that's what's going to happen. Uh, in the U.S. economy. There are so many things that are going to go wrong or that could go wrong. And unfortunately, they're all likely to go wrong at the same time when people least expect it. But look, if you look at the national debt right now, we're now at $25.6 trillion on the national debt. I mean, it was, what, not even three weeks ago that we hit $25 trillion. And now we're more than halfway to 26. I mean, these these uh, numbers, the trillions are being added very quickly. I'm looking at the uh, usnationaldebtclock.org to get these numbers. And they're a little behind because they're having the national debt at 25.52. And uh, I know it's better than 25.6. So they're a little bit behind, but they're close. You know, they'll probably be caught up by tomorrow. But if you go there, you can look at some really, really interesting numbers. One of them is total federal spending. And, you know, they break it down. They have the official spending, which is what the government is spending on the books. And then they have the unofficial spending, which is what they're actually spending. Right. It's the actual spending that counts. Right. What they pretend to spend doesn't really count. It's what they're really spending. Right. And so what they are pretending to spend is six point one eight five trillion dollars. Right. What they're actually spending is $6.685 trillion. That's the spending that has to be paid for, right? I mean, if your wife tells you, look, you know, I pretended I spent this, but I really spent that. It's what she really spent that you got to pay for. It doesn't matter how much she wants to pretend she spends less. The reality is it's the actual spending that has to be paid for. And when the federal government is spending $6.685 trillion, that's what they have to cover, not the $6.185 trillion that they pretend, which is part of the budget. Now, that means the pretend deficit, based on the pretend spending, is $2.94 trillion. But the actual deficit, based on what they've actually spent, is $3.442 trillion. So the actual deficit is better than half a trillion more than the pretend deficit. Right. But what you have to look at is to keep all this in perspective, 
Look at federal tax revenue, right? That's how much money the government actually has to spend. That's what it's collecting in taxes. The government is collecting $3.243 trillion in taxes. It's spending $6.685 trillion. That means the government is collecting less than half of what it's spending in taxes. That means the government is actually borrowing more money than it raises through taxation. I mean, think about that. I mean, apply that to a family. What if you were borrowing in a given year more money than you actually earned, right? And then you spent all that, right? If your lifestyle was such that you had to borrow more money than you actually earned to finance your lifestyle, what does that mean about your lifestyle? You clearly can't afford it. I mean, obviously, if the U.S. government were to tax American citizens today at a level that's equal to what they're spending today on government, so if we actually had to pay for the government that we are receiving, everybody would have to pay more than double what they are currently paying in taxes. How many Americans could afford to pay twice what they're paying now in federal taxes and still survive. I mean, for a lot of people, federal taxes are their number one expense, right? And that would include your payroll tax would have to double, right? Your social security tax. So right now, your, your people are having 15% of their payroll in social security tax. That would have to go to 30%. Who could afford that? And then pay income tax with what's left? Then they, they, they everything got doubled? So, no, it's impossible. We obviously can't afford it. So we cannot afford all this government. Now, the only reason that we can pretend that we can afford it is because interest rates are so low. You'll look on this U.S. Debt Org page. Interest on the national debt. It tells you how much we're spending right now in interest on the national debt. And it's $383.8 billion, almost $384 billion in interest. That's a lot of money. That's about, I'm doing the math, that's about 10, 11% of tax revenue. So about 10 cents uh, of every uh, dollar of income is going to pay interest on our debt, not, not paying down the principal. Remember, we're not paying down any principal on this debt, right? It's like an interest-only loan that we got, right? But we can take 10% of our actual income and we can, we can pay the interest on the debt. I guess that's doable. But that's only because the average rate of interest on the $25.6 trillion national debt is 1.5%. I mean, how do you have this much debt and pay such a low amount of interest on all that debt? I mean, that's unsustainable. What you have to do is try to look at what the numbers would be if interest rates were to normalize, which they have to do eventually. I mean, what if interest rates went up to 5%, which is not high. If you go to the, you know, uh, post-1971 or even post-Second World War, but I like to look at after 1971 because that's when we went to fiat money. But if you look at, you know, interest rates, 5% is, is still lower than normal. If the government only had to pay 5% to finance the entirety of its national debt, that would probably be less than the average going back to 1970, what it's paid. I mean, it's high relative to what it's been paying recently. Uh, but you know, recently, these, this is an aberration, right? This is not normal. This is, this is abnormal. So if we return to normal, what would that mean? Well, at 5% of the current national debt, it would cost $1.28 trillion just to pay the interest on the national debt. Now, to put that into perspective, right now we're paying $689 billion on national defense. So it would be about double what we're spending on the entire national defense. Can you imagine if the cost of interest on the debt was twice the entire budget for defending the nation. Look at what we're spending now on Social Security. It's just over a trillion dollars a year. According to uh, this website, it's $1.076 trillion. 
So if interest rates went to 5%, remember, the national debt has a short maturity. So if, you know, if it goes to 5%, it wouldn't take long for the entire debt to cost 5%, right? But let's, and, and maybe short-term rates would have to go to 6 or 7 or whatever to get a blended average, but that's, you know, that's not that high. But at 5%, it would, we would be spending more in interest on the debt, about 20% more than we spend on Social Security. And we would be spending about the same amount that we spend on Medicare, which is right now $1.284 trillion. In fact, if at 5.1% interest on the debt, at $25.6 trillion, we would actually be spending more money on interest than we do on Medicare. And if you look at the interest as a percentage of tax revenues, if we had 5% interest rates and we had to pay 5% of the debt at today's size, 26.6, we would be spending 40 cents out of every federal tax dollar on interest on the debt. That means 40% of all of our income taxes, 40% of all of our social security taxes, right? All that money would go to paying interest on the debt before the government got to provide any services or any of these entitlements, 40 cents right off the top would go to paying interest on the national debt. In fact, looking at the national debt right now as, or as a multiple of our tax revenue, because that's what the government has to spend legitimately, right? It's borrowing right now, but it's, it's taxing capacity is what it has. So if you look at what the government is actually earning in tax revenue right now, it's taking in $3.24 trillion against the $25.6 trillion national debt. That means it would take eight years, eight years of tax revenue to pay off the national debt. And that, of course, would mean eight years where the government spent all of its tax revenue on paying off the national debt and nothing on anything else, which is impossible for them to do that. But if you think about that for a minute, the debt, and this is just the national debt. This is not the unfunded liabilities. You go down on that page and you look at total unfunded liabilities, they're $147 trillion. It's almost $150 trillion. The unfunded liabilities, that's the money that the government has committed to pay, but it hasn't actually borrowed. Well, like the money it's on the hook for, for Medicare and Social Security. I'm not even talking about that you know, iceberg. I'm just talking about this little teeny tip that we're seeing above the surface, the funded debt, which consists exclusively of U.S. Treasury debt, which again is the tip of the iceberg of what the U.S. taxpayer is on the hook for. But just looking at that, eight years of tax revenue. You know, the old rule of thumb, and it may not be the, the rule of thumb now, it was at one time, for realtors, right? When you're looking to buy a house, the house that you buy is supposed to be maybe 2.6 times your annual income, right? So your household income. So if a guy's making 200000 or if a guy and his wife combined are making 200000 a year, they, they could buy a house for about six hundred grand, right? For a $200,000 income. Now, obviously, too, when you, you're buying a $600,000 house, you're making a down payment, right? Maybe if you put 20% down. So the actual mortgage that you are taking out if you're spending 2.6 times your household income on a house, maybe the mortgage that you're committing to repay is uh, twice your, your annual income, right? So maybe you're taking out a $400,000 mortgage if you have $200,000 of, of annual income, right? Well, we've got eight times. That's the, our mortgage. We've got eight years of the government's in, uh, income to pay off this debt. But the debt is a moving target. I mean, this debt is going to be $30 trillion by next year. In fact, at the rate we're going, we could be at $30 trillion this year. But assuming it slows down a little bit, it's going to take till next year to get the $30 trillion. We can't afford all this government. You know, I, I looked at the, uh, the trajectory of government spending before the 2008 financial crisis and Great Recession. And if you look at federal total federal spending 
around 2007, right? Kind of before the recession started. The government was spending about $2.7 trillion a year. That was what they were spending. And then it got up to about $3.5 trillion a year as a result of uh, TARP and, you know, the bailouts and all the stuff that we did in 08 and 09. Government started spending about $3.5 trillion. A couple of years, maybe a little bit more than that, right? And, and then kind of it tapered off. It never really got that much below $3.5 trillion. Maybe it got down to 3.4, kind of bottomed out in 2014, right? Government spending never got back down to where it was before the Great Recession, right? It stopped growing for a while after the Great Recession, right? And then the economy picked up a bit. So as a percentage of GDP, uh, government spending began to come down. But remember, one of the reasons that that happened was um, the Tea Party, right? The Tea Party came in in 2010. The, the Republicans were outraged by all the government spending that the budget had gone up to $3.5 trillion under, under Obama. People were upset about bailouts, right? They didn't want any more bailouts. And so we got the Republican Tea Party that came to town and they kind of put the brakes on Obama. They put the brakes on spending. You know, we got the sequester and all the other things that we got to try to limit spending. We had the big battle over the debt ceiling. And so that kind of kept spending in check. It didn't really start moving up again until about 2015, 2016. That's when it really started to go up. And then it continued and accelerated after the election of Donald Trump. And in fact, by some point in 2016, the government was spending more than it was at its peak during the Great Recession, even though we weren't even in recession anymore. And by the time uh, 2020 started, right, we were already spending over $4.5 trillion, right? A trillion dollars more than we were spending uh, during the Great Recession, and we weren't even in recession, right? So the economy, even though we got this huge fiscal stimulus to get us out of that recession, they never really took the stimulus away. Government spending never was reduced back down to where it was before the Great Recession. Now, the same thing is probably going to happen now. There's no way the government could actually withdraw all that stimulus once it supplies it because now the market needs it. The market needs it now more than ever before. Now that the Fed has put all this money in, we're spending $6.7 trillion. We've increased government spending by like 50% since the COVID crisis began and tax revenues have gone down. Uh, so how are we ever going to take this away? It's going to be impossible. So this is now the size of government and it's going to get bigger. And this is what's going to produce the crisis because the world is going to start doing the math here, right? Like uh, Andrew Yang used to say, right? The math doesn't lie. The math is the math. It doesn't work, right? Think about this, right? What happens if let's say the national debt goes to 30 trillion dollars by next year and there's a loss of confidence in the dollar right people start to question our ability to service this debt and the dollar tanks right it has a decline and prices start to pick up we get an outbreak of inflation and interest rates go up not to five percent what if they go up to 10%? Now, people say, oh, Peter, why? What with 10%? That's not even possible. Why even think it? Well, first of all, you know, you got to factor in all the possibilities, right? Again, I mentioned Murphy's Law. Is it possible that rates can go to 10%? Sure, it's possible. I mean, in 1980, under Paul Volcker, rates went to 20%. So if they can go to 20% in 1980, when we were in much better fiscal shape than we are today, we had a much sounder economy. We had a trade surplus. We were a creditor nation. We had a much smaller national debt. We were a much better credit risk in 1980 than we are today. Uh, so if interest rates could go up to 20% in 1980, you certainly have to acknowledge the possibility that they can go to 10% today. So if interest rates went to 10% on the national debt 
and it was 30 trillion. Do the math. How much does it cost us to pay the interest on the national debt? $3 trillion a year. $3 trillion. The government right now is only collecting $3.2 trillion in taxes. That's almost all of the tax revenue. But, you know, if we have 10% interest rates, I guarantee you the government's not going to collect three and a quarter trillion in taxes because we're going to be in a worse recession than we're in right now. The government would be lucky to collect three trillion in taxes if interest rates went to 10%. But that would mean that paying interest on the debt would take up 100% of government tax revenue and that wouldn't even be enough. The government would need more money. Now you can say, well, we're going to just borrow the money. How are you going to borrow it? Rates are 10%, right? If we have a crisis, we have to start living within our means. If the U.S. government had to live within its means, it would have to use 100% of its means to pay the national debt, and it couldn't even do it. So we would have to raise taxes in that recession to get more money to make payments on the national debt. But try raising taxes in a severe recession. You may actually get less revenue. So it's impossible. See, this is the the point that I'm trying to make is if interest rates go up high enough, it is mathematically impossible for us to service the debt, let alone pay it back. But you know what happens is when people start asking these questions, right? When people start to question the creditworthiness of the United States and our ability to repay our debt. They don't want to keep loaning it to us. They want their money back, right? The, the, the way we're able to keep the, the whole Ponzi scheme going is when bonds mature, right? Somebody else loans us the money. Either the same person rolls it over. Right? Remember there was that old movie with Chris Kostafis and Rollover. Right, where they contemplated, hey, what happens if you know, the Arabs or whatever don't roll over the treasuries, right? And it was a big spike in interest rates and, and gold went to several thousand dollars an ounce. It's an interesting movie if you haven't seen it. The reality is actually going to be worse uh, than that version of it. But either the, the, the existing holders will roll over the debt, right? It'll mature and they'll just use the money they get to buy a new bond and they'll loan the money right back to us. Or... We pay off the existing bondholders with money that we get from the new bondholder, right? It's, you know, the classic Ponzi scheme. Well, that's only if there's new suckers that are willing to loan the money. Well, when people start to question these numbers, and again, it isn't even about uh, just, well, will we default? Because clearly, if we don't want to destroy our currency, we have to default. Right? The only way not to destroy the dollar is to default. Right? But the thing is, if we do default, that's going to be very destructive to the dollar too. Just not as destructive as paying everybody off because the only way we can do that is to destroy the dollar completely because we have to keep printing them. But that's what people are going to be concerned about. It's not just about that America may default on the debt because we don't have the tax revenue to service it, let alone pay it off but that we might print so much money because that's the only way we can pay is to print money. Because when people don't want to roll over the debt or they don't want to loan money, we have to pay it all back. It's not just about paying the interest. It's about repaying the principal. Well, if we have to repay the principal, we obviously can't. So we either default or the Fed inflates. The Fed takes all the bonds that nobody else wants and prints all the money to pay for it. But of course, once they start doing that, they're buying all the muni bonds, they're buying all the corporate bonds, they're buying everything. I think these numbers are just so spectacular. People are going to look at these things and realize that the United States is insolvent today. We are an insolvent nation. We are bankrupt. The fact that we're still able to survive, yeah, we're like talking about these zombie companies. We are a zombie country, right? We only exist because the world is still clueless enough to believe that we're good for debts that it's impossible to repay. Now, how long is it going to take people to just look at these numbers? I mean, it's not like they're hidden. They're right there on the internet. Anybody can see that we're insolvent, that we're headed for a fiscal and monetary train wreck. 
And this is not in the distant future. We have accelerated this process dramatically by upping the ante to the degree that we had. And so all the people who want to say, oh, look, you know, Peter Schiff was wrong because you were warning about this inflation problem, this solvency problem in 2010, and we didn't have a crisis. Yes, we didn't have a crisis. And so all the problems I was warning about got worse, not better. And so now we're going to get the crisis that I thought we would have got sooner, only we're going to get it worse and we're going to get it later. You know, and investors need to prepare for this. They need to prepare for it now. You know, and the irony of it is, you know, you look at what happened in the markets the last couple of days. We had a pretty big sell-off in the gold stocks. I mean, today we had a nice rally off the lows, uh, and but we still closed down on the day, even though gold and silver actually both eked out gains. But yesterday's rally prompted a big sell-off in, in gold stocks. Gold was only down about 10 bucks, 10, 12 bucks. I mean, not, so over the two days, gold barely fell, but they threw away these gold stocks. A lot of these gold stocks, almost, you know, corrections in two days, you had maybe 10% moves in two days, eight to 10% moves on a $10, $15 move down in gold or 20 maybe at the lows today before, before the recovery. Uh, but you still have people thinking that, oh, look, the stock market is coming back. We don't need our hedges, right? It's risk on. So we can take off our safe havens. We don't need these gold stocks because the market is going up. The market is only going up because of the Fed. And it's only going up because of the false expectations of a recovery that isn't going to happen because it's impossible to recover back to a bubble. If you don't know we were in a bubble, if you think we had a real economy, then potentially you think we can have a real recovery. But once you realize that we were in a bubble, you know there's no going back, right? And, and, and so since the only reason that the market is going up is because of the Fed, because the Fed is creating inflation to prop up the market and to create this false sense of optimism that a recovery is coming, it's all because of the Fed, right? The Fed is engendering uh, these beliefs based on its monetary stimulus, the fiscal stimulus would not be possible without the Fed. You know, when you have uh, Powell saying we need more fiscal stimulus, he's actually saying we need more monetary stimulus because you can't have more fiscal stimulus without the Fed. Because what Powell is asking Congress to do is run bigger deficits, right? To stimulate the economy. Well, they can only run bigger deficits if the Fed is financing them. The Fed has to increase the size of its quantitative easing in order to finance the fiscal stimulus that Powell claims we need. So he's really saying we need to print more money. We need more monetary stimulus. Imagine a central banker who's saying this. This is the antithesis of what central bankers are supposed to do. Right? Again, he's not uh, taking away the punch bowl. He's the guy pouring all the alcohol in or he's handing the bottles of alcohol to other people and then grabbing their arms and, 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 and forcing the alcohol into the punch bowl. That's what he's doing. That is his role right now. So if people really understood that, they would never be selling gold or gold stocks. They would be buying gold stocks. And I think what you need to watch in the market to show that investors get it, right, is to see gold and gold stocks going up even on the days where the market is going up big. I mean, right now, whenever the market is up big, you see selling in these stocks. Ultimately, what's going to happen is on the big up moves in the stock market, we'll see even bigger up moves in the gold stock market. And then when the regular stock market is going down, well, then the gold stocks should still go up, right? Because they have a long way to go to get to where they need to be. Because the average investor has a long way to go to understand where we are and where we're going. You still have so much denial of reality, of economic reality, uh, of the markets and of the United States and of the, the, the severe financial problem when you have the issuer of the world's reserve currency that is effectively insolvent, that is effectively bankrupt, and that is flooding the world with units of a currency that are supposed to be the reserve, but which can't possibly function as the reserve in this environment. And of course, 
if we weren't issuing the reserve currency, we would have already been forced to make the difficult decisions that being the issuer of the world's reserve currency uh, allows us not to make, allows us to push off the consequences and the costs on the rest of the world, which is now being asked to pony up and shoulder a far bigger burden than ever before. And I think they're, they're going to shrug. They're not going to want to shoulder that burden. And the dollar's days as the reserve currency are over. And that doesn't mean that the euro is going to be the new reserve currency. That doesn't mean the yen or the RMB. No, it means we're going back to gold. Gold's going to be the reserve. Why not? I mean, that's the obvious answer. People are like trying to think, well, the dollar will never lose its status because there's no currency that can replace it. I agree. There is no currency that can replace it. That's why we're not going to replace it with a currency. We're going to replace it with real money, right? There's no currency that deserves to be the reserve, including the U.S. dollar. Remember, why is the U.S. dollar the reserve currency? Because it was backed by gold. In fact, it wasn't only backed by gold. It was redeemable into gold. The dollar was gold. That's why we became the reserve currency. Is the dollar redeemable in gold now? No, it's not redeemable in anything. When we became the reserve currency, the U.S. was the biggest creditor nation. We're now the biggest debtor nation. The United States led the world in manufacturing and exporting of low-cost manufactured goods. Now we import the goods we used to manufacture. You don't need dollars to buy our stuff, right? We have to buy everybody else's stuff. None of the characteristics that the United States had that caused the world to accept the dollar as the reserve currency exists today, right? Other countries are much closer to what America used to be than America is, but none of the countries really deserve it. Uh, and, and I don't think the world is going to make the mistake of just, you know, taking the crown of king currency and taking it off the U.S. and putting it on Europe or putting it on Japan. I mean, they're not going to do that. Once confidence in the dollar is lost, it's lost, you know? And, 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 and I think that once people see a dollar crisis, they're not going to assume that, well, the euro is any better. If this could happen to the dollar, well, what's the difference? All these currencies are the same. I mean, when you take some South American currency that collapses, you know, or like the Zimbabwe dollar, okay, that doesn't cause the world to lose confidence in fiat money in general, because they think there's a big difference between the U.S. dollar and the Zimbabwe dollar or the, you know, Argentinian peso, right? But if the dollar crashes, what good is the euro? What good is the yen, right? All of a sudden, the whole thing calls into question. So the only way to restore confidence and stability into the global monetary system in the aftermath of a U.S. dollar crisis is to go back to gold. The central banks already have gold. They just need to buy more. And in fact, when the value of the gold they hold triples and quadruples, that automatically increases the percentage of gold that they have in reserve. But remember, the country that has the most to lose from a return to a gold standard is the United States, at least in the short run, because we are the currency that benefited the most from the reserve status. You know, there are a lot of countries that it's not going to make a difference because, you know, they don't have a printing press, right? If you're, let's say, uh, Australia, you can't print U.S. dollars in Australia. You still have to earn your U.S. dollars. You know, you have to export to get them. You just can't create them out of thin air. And so if gold uh, became the new reserve, well, then the Australians would have to earn gold the same way they now earn dollars. The, the game changer is for the U.S. We don't have to earn dollars. We just print them. We don't have to export to get them. We got them automatically. But if we're on a gold standard, then it's a whole new ball game for America. Now, if we want gold, we got to earn it. We got to export something to get it, or we got to mine it. Now, all of a sudden, we have to use real resources in order to survive. We have to produce if we want to consume. We're going to have to save if we want to borrow. So this whole phony economy that's been built on the foundation of the reserve status of the U.S. dollar is going to come tumbling down. So before it does, get your financial house in order, take advantage of this dip in the mining stocks, buy more, get into my gold fund, your Pacific gold fund. Uh, you can take the risk, set up a managed account for us to manage in gold stocks, 
or you know, just get into foreign stocks, get out of the dollar, my value fund, my dividend pairs fund, also the separately managed accounts that we have in these stocks before the bottom drops out of the dollar, while you can still find somebody dumb enough to accept your dollars, convert them into real assets around the world that pay good income, get yourself some gold, get some silver, which by the way, I think silver's bottomed out. I think we've seen the lows now in silver. Silver been trading well uh, relative to gold. I think that's a key. I think that's also a key that the next gold rally is coming and it's probably gonna be led by silver. Uh, so load up on silver as well as gold and you can get both at Shift Gold. <music>